Good morning, familia. I want to remind you first than anything that if you have your booklet with you, Upside Down Kingdom booklet with you, you could go to page 35 and there's room there for you to take notes. And the two pages that come after that, you find the questions that we usually go through in our live groups. If you lost your booklet, do not worry. We fixed that for you because there's a digital copy available for you in a church app. Amen. All right, Upside Down Kingdom is the name of this uh, series um, that we have going through section by section uh, that comes from the Gospel of Matthew, known as the Sermon on the Mount, that goes from Matthew chapter 5 all the way to chapter 7. And this is a set of teachings Jesus gave his disciples right before he sent them into the world as people that would represent him. Last week, we started uh, chapter 6. Uh, and today, this is the second part of chapter 6, and we're going to be talking about prayer. Um, and I'm assuming that everyone here is an expert in this topic. Um, and I would actually say that if there's one topic that we all struggle with from everything in the Bible, for some reason, is the topic of prayer. I actually don't have any answers why we struggle so much with prayer. All I know is that it's something beautiful, amazing, and powerful, and we don't use it as much as we ought to. Elizabeth Elliot used to say that many of us treat prayer the same way we treat a, a sport, if you like sports. She says this, sometimes prayer is something you do if you like it, something you do in your spare time, something you do if you can afford uh, afford the trouble, something you do if you're good at it, otherwise you do without it most of the time. And I think that, I think that she is right. She says this, prayer isn't, is not a sport, it's work. Maybe that's the reason why it's so hard. Prayer is not a sport, it's work. Prayer is work because a Christian simply cannot make a living without it. Tim Keller says that prayer is not something that is passive, calm, or a quiet practice. Prayer, therefore, must be intentional, and it requires a lot. So that's why we need to talk about this today. And these are my three points for today. We're going to talk about the model and how to pray, because that's what Jesus is going to show us here. The reason why we should pray. And number three, the motivation to pray. The model and how we pray, the reason and why we should pray, and the motivation to pray. Let's go with the first one. But before we do that, can you do me a favor just to make you uncomfortable? Can you look at the person next to you and ask, just ask the question, how is your prayer life? <laughs> you struggle even with that one. <laughs> Never mind, come back over here. <laughs> you just asking the question makes you feel so guilty. That's what it is. <laughs> That's all right, it goes for me too. Let's look at the model here. Let me start by making a statement. When, when Jesus is giving us this example of what prayer looks like, 
He is not telling us that this is the only way we pray. And he is not telling us that these are the only words we ought to use when we pray. He's giving us principles here. And he's going to show us that at least in this prayer, there are at least three forms of prayer. There's another one, but at least three forms of prayer. The first one has to do with the word adoration. It's when we express to God who he is. The second one has to do with the word confession. When we recognize the struggles in our hearts and the things that we have done and we, and we bring, into, uh, bring them to him. The third one is the word supplication. is us requesting things from God. The only one that he's not mentioning there, that is in the rest of the Bible also, is the word thanksgiving. A healthy prayer life has all these four forms of prayer. Adoration, confession, supplication, and thanksgiving. If you want to have something quick to remember, uh, I always use the word acts, A-C-T-S. And your life supposed to show this type of, if you're a Christian, supposed to have these types of prayers all the time. And you, what I want to do in this text is to show you why this is so important. So let's look at the model first. And Jesus starts with the word adoration. He doesn't use the word adoration, but the principle is there. Verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now the word hallowed is an important word because it has to do with us recognizing the value or dignity of something. And once we recognize the value and the dignity of that thing or that person... We respond to it. When we recognize the value and the dignity of God, the natural response is to adore him or to worship him. But Jesus doesn't stop there because he uses the word name, which is really important because there are no names in the Bible that are just names. Every time the biblical narrative shows you a name, it's a way to describe the character and many times the nature of a person. You see, when I chose the, uh, the names for my daughters, uh, you know, I'm sorry, don't, don't judge me there for a second, but all I did was I looked for a name that sounded really cool. <laughs> and then I said, man, I would love to have a daughter that has this name. But that's not what the Bible shows. Behind every name in the Bible, there's a description of character and many times a description of nature. So when Jesus is calling us to hallow the name of God, he's calling us to recognize the value and the dignity that God has. And we know that he's got that value and dignity because of his name. If you want to know what the name of God represents, you have to read the rest of the Bible. But because we don't have the time in the 26 minutes I have left to do that, I'm going to rely on one of the Christian confessions that gives us an explanation of what the word name means when it comes to God. It says, what is God? That is the question they ask. Now, listen, there are 20 reasons why we worship God here. God is a spirit. In and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. 
all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And every time we think of the name of God, at least we have this. The reason why we worship God is because we recognize that behind that name, it's all of this. And it's impossible not to worship God. And it's impossible not to adore God when you know who he is. Not just what he does, but who he is. We all do that by nature, you know. We are worshipers by nature. We see something amazing and we automatically react to it. How many of you guys have kids? If you still remember that you have kids. <laughs> I, want, I want to take you back to the first time you saw that baby. To the first time you saw that beautiful baby. That day you worshipped the baby. Because that's what we do by nature. We react to whatever is beautiful and perfect and amazing. I am convinced that one of the reasons why we struggle with adoration and worship is because we don't stop to recognize who God is. We concentrate so much on the things he does that we forget who he is. And this is the thing, that unless we recognize who God is, there will be no reverence, there will be no submission, there will be, there will be no admiration. We respond to who he is. That's why we worship. Now, from adoration, now Jesus jumps into supplication, the things that we ask God for. And he shows us three different types of supplication here. In verse 10, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in that sentence alone, we find at least two things. Number one, that if you are a Christian, you ought to desire that earth looks like heaven. That's part of our call. That as Christians, we pray that earth looks like heaven. So if heaven is a place of no pain, no struggle, no suffering, complete justice, equality, reconciliation, and peace, that's what we pray for here. Our requests are much more than the, our immediate needs, you know, and it's much more than our immediate context. We want the entire earth to look like heaven. One of my professors at seminary used to say, every day when you pray, he would say, you need the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now, that was back in the days when we had newspapers. 
But, I, but I've never forgotten that. Because that's what I ought to do, and that's what I ought to pray. We have to remember that Paul, one of the things that Paul says in, first, in Colossians chapter 1, is that God wants to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And the reason part of, and we know that that's true because that's part of the reason why God sent Jesus to the cross. One of the evidences that the church has become a consumeristic church, and I'm talking about this church in specific, the church in general, is that we only pray for our own little things. Our own little work, our own little family, our own little things. And notice that Jesus says that we ought to pray not for my will to get done, but God's will to get done. We are not praying according to our agenda. We pray to align ourselves to God's agenda. Let me say that again because that's not my thought. We pray not according to our agenda. We pray to align ourselves to God's agenda. That comes from Scott Saul's. Scott Saul's. The kingdom of God is much bigger than you and your things, and your family. The kingdom of God is much bigger than this church. It's about earth looking like heaven. The second supplication that we find there comes in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Now the phrase there, daily bread, is really important. Because we are, one of the things that Jesus is teaching is that when we pray, we pray for whatever we need. Listen up, people, today. Because we must learn to trust Him for our tomorrow. This prayer is teaching us that we depend on God every day, daily. Therefore, we have to trust Him daily, not tomorrow. Today, you remember the narrative when the Israelites, uh, God is providing manna for them? And the principle was really clear. You go every day and you grab the manna that you need for today. What did the greedy people do? They will grab for today, for their cousin, their grandma, and tomorrow. And that manna will not last. God wanted to teach the Israelites that we are fully dependent on him every day. Every day of your life. I think that that's part of the reason why we have, we struggle so much with our obsession for the future, people. For some reason, for some reason, we think that God is going to get it wrong tomorrow. For some reason, we think that he's not going to be good enough tomorrow. Oh, Jesus, give us our daily bread. I depend on you today. Listen to uh, Elizabeth uh, Elliot once again. Today is mine. Tomorrow is none of my business. <laughs> Amazing woman. If I peer anxiety uh, anxiously into the fog of the future... I will strain my spiritual eyes so that I will not see clearly what is required of me 
today. Notice that she's not saying that we shouldn't care about the future. What she's saying, though, is that we should not be anxious about the future because we won't value what we have today. And we won't know what we're supposed to do today. If I cannot trust God for my tomorrow, I will not enjoy his provision today. And the third supplication that Jesus shows us here comes in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And the word temptation, there is the same word that the Bible somewhere else used to, uh, to describe uh, testing. I actually think that the word test, te, uh, temptation and testing in the Bible are usually, usually function as synonyms. Because every time you are tempted, it's always an opportunity to sin. But every time you are tested, it's an opportunity to grow. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that we pray to God that he does not allow temptation to become a sin. But that we use those opportunities as trials or testing in order for us to grow. Noticed that he's not saying, free me from temptation or free me from trials. Jesus is almost saying, what we need is power in the midst of troubles, clarity in the midst of problems, submission to God in the midst of temptations. That's what we pray. So for the first part, Jesus teaches how to adore and worship as a response to who he is. Right here, he's teaching us how to pray uh, supplication or request things from God. And lastly, he's going to teach us how to confess. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts. And obviously there he's talking about repentance. Martin Luther used to say that the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. In other words, that there's always something in your life that you should be repenting for. Listen, I know that there's a lot of people here that have been a Christian much, for much longer than I have. But in my 20-something years as a Christian, if there's one thing that I've learned, is that the more I know God, I'm 65. I know I look pretty young, right? One thing that I've learned is that the more I know God, the more I know his Bible, the more reasons I have for repenting. And not because I'm a worse Christian, but because I get to see what I didn't see before. Therefore, prayer requires that you know what you do wrong and that you know the right things that you were supposed to do and you didn't do. You know, that's why some theologians, uh, theologians, they talk about the difference between sins of commission and sins of omission. For those of you that are not familiar with those terms, the sins of uh, commission are the things that you know that you're not supposed to do and you do. Therefore, we repent of that. 
But the sins of omission are the things that you know that you're supposed to do, but you don't do. And we repent of that. So let me give you an example here. Let's grab one of the commandments, one that no one struggles with. Do not steal. Now, listen, if you have been in a church for more than a month, you would say, man, I'm so, I'm so clean. Because obviously the commandment is telling you that to steal time or money or things, it's a sin. But we have to learn, the, we have to, learn to read the commandments, not as prohibitions, but also as things that he demands of us. Because the opposite of not stealing is to be generous. So if you are not taking anything from someone that does not belong to you, amen to that. But if you are not being generous with your time and with your talents and with your money and with your things, then you are called to repent of that too. Therefore, the principle here is that we are all called to daily self-examination. Adoration is important. Supplication is important. Confession is important. And I want to remind you that the last prayer that Jesus is not including here, but is in the rest of the Bible, is thanksgiving. Because unless we learn how to thank God for every evidence of his grace in our life, we commit the sins that the Israelites committed. We forget. So let me ask you the question, how is your prayer life? And this is not to make you feel guilty whatsoever. This is to remind you. That prayer is how we live. This is what it means to live, to pray, to adore, to confess, to request, to think. The second question, the second point that I want to address here is, why is it that we pray? Because there's got to be a greater reason. There's got to be a greater purpose on why we pray. Besides knowing God and besides confessing and besides all of these things. And I want to say that maybe, just maybe, there are two main reasons why we should always be practicing prayer. Number one is because the Bible shows us that prayer changes things. God uses our prayers and God counts with our prayers to change things. See, sometimes people ask the question, if God already knows everything, why pray? Or, if God is in control, control of everything, why pray? And I'm going to give you the most theological answer I could give you. I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I, I, I know that God is in control. I know that God is powerful. I know that God knows everything from beginning to end. And yet I also know that God calls me to pray. And that when we pray, things happen. Not in my time, not in my terms, not when I want, but things happened. Things happened which would not happen without prayer. 
Things happen which would not happen without prayer. Listen to C.S. Lewis. We are not mere recipients or spectators. We are either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the work. He gave us small creatures the dignity of being able to contribute contribute to the course of events. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Tiny little people collaborating with the king of the universe. How many times do you find in the Bible Moses standing between God and the Israelites? And God listened. How many prophets we find in the Bible interceding for God's people? And God listened. How many people were healed and resurrected to life because someone prayed? Because God listens. How many of you guys are here because someone prayed for you? Because God listens. My grandma prayed for my mom years. And God listened. My mom prayed for me for a year. And God listened. I hope. Because I wouldn't be here. Prayer changes things. There's not one person in this room, if you are a Christian, that you are here, that you are not here, that you are here because someone prayed for you. Someone had to pray for you. Maybe you don't even know who prayed for you, but someone prayed for you. You know what's the easiest thing to do in prayer? Quit. The easiest thing to do about praying is quitting. The hardest thing to do is to persist. I don't know who you're praying for. I don't know how long that's going to take. But we never quit. We are like the persistent widow. And we knock, and we knock, and we knock, and we knock. And because God is good, he listens. And because he's powerful, he would do something. I don't know when and I don't know how, but he will. Prayer changes things. And prayer changes you. We must worship the name of God, hallowed be his name. Because either we worship him or we're going to worship something else. We must find him beautiful and perfect and sufficient because we either find him beautiful, perfect, or insufficient, or we will look for something else. We pray that his will be done, because if we don't do that, our entire life will be reduced to what we want. We must pray for a daily bread, because that will be the only way we remember that we are not self-sufficient. That we are fully dependent on God all the times in everything we do. We must pray God forgive our sins because that will be the only way we find freedom from guilt, shame, and fear. 
We must pray God keeps us from temptation because that's the only way we recognize that we are weak and that our, that our sins have awful consequences upon our relationship with God and the people we love. We must pray to God that he keeps us from temptation because we must recognize that we need his protection. We must pray because he teaches what it means to trust him. We must pray because that's the only way that we grow in patience. We learn how to wait. We don't believe in microwave prayers, you know. We pray because that's the only way we learn the difference between a need and a want. You know why? Really simple. Because if you pray for a need, quote-unquote need, but God doesn't give it to you, that wasn't a need. It was just a want. We pray because that's the only way we actually get to see what we really need. We pray as a church because we believe all of that. We are shaped by our prayers. Prayer does not change God. It changes the one that prays. How is your prayer life? So here's one last question. How do we know that God listens, though? How do we know that God listens? Well, this is the third point, the motivation to pray. Because there's one phrase there that explains why we can be certain that God listens. And it's the first sentence in the prayer. Our Father in heaven. The reason why we know that God listens to your prayer if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ is because he is your father. And notice this, in this phrase, it's, it's amazing because he shows us God as a father that is intimate, but at the same time, he's powerful because he's in heaven. He shows us a father, a, a God that is personal because he's a father, but he's almighty because he's in heaven. He shows us this father that don't mind to be interrupted by his children. Like my daughters, they don't need permission to come to me at 3 o'clock in the morning. They just come into my room. And that's what we do in prayer. He shows us the picture of a father that gives us access to him whenever we want to, however we want to. It shows us the picture of a father that never turns you back. Remember the story of the prodigal son. It shows us the picture of a father that always listens. How do we know that he listens? Because he's our father. And because we have been adopted in Jesus Christ. You know, last week I was talking to the a contemporary service, and I was saying, there are so many beautiful things about Christianity. There are so many things, beautiful things about what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. 
So, for example, we use words as being justified and forgiven and accepted and redeemed. Those are all beautiful words. But the greatest word of all is the concept of adoption. To know that we belong to God because he's our father. A father that would never let you go. A father that was willing to surrender his one and only son so he wouldn't lose you. You know that there's only one, there's actually, two, no, there's actually one, only one um, time in the life of Jesus in which he prayed and he didn't get an answer. That's at the cross. Why have you forsaken me, he says. And he got nothing. Do you know why? So you get everything. We know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day, he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. He prayed and he got nothing. We prayed and we got him. Do you believe in prayer? You ought to. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that prayer is just hard. And that it might be one of those spiritual disciplines that we practice the less. Or we practice less than anything else. And I pray, Lord, that you make of us people of prayer. That we get to adore you, Lord. That we get to request uh, from you anything and everything that is required. And I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you give us a heart to repent. Be quick to repent. And I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you give us a spirit that is, uh, that is always thanking you for everything that you do. I pray, Lord, that you make of us people that believe that prayer changes everything. And that believe that we are changed by our prayers. Please make it happen. We pray for all, all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says, Amen. But we stand and we receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. Before we do that, let me just ask you a question. Did you know that it is, it is possible to feel completely, to have everything and feel completely empty? Did you know that it is possible to lack everything and be completely satisfied? If you want to hear what that's all about, come back next week. That's what we're going to be talking about. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And the church says, have a blessed day. We love you. Thanks for coming. <laughs>